Over here, we have Noah as a righteous, blameless man before God. And over here, we see that all flesh had corrupted their way on earth before God. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Thank you for your prayers uh, for our family and our shorts uh, and just a refreshing little vacation. We got to spend some time up in Pennsylvania in Amish country, uh, which my family is a part of the Miller family. So it was interesting to be back. My wife kept joking, saying, you're home. You're back home. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Got to see Marcos and Melissa Aguiar and uh, spend some time with family in Washington, D.C. So thank you for your prayers. Let's just go to the Lord and uh, ask him to bless his word this morning. Father, it is good to be here this morning, and we ask that you would instruct us by your spirit, you would encourage and comfort our hearts, and that you would minister to the the men and the fathers today, but to every human heart. Lord, we ask that uh, you would be lifted high as we study your word. So edify and equip and encourage the saints today. We're so thankful to be together. And we ask your blessing as we study your timeless and eternal word. Lord, we ask that you would now speak through your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes being a man of God feels like you are absolutely alone standing on a seashore where a tsunami uh, of worldliness rushes in at you. You are a man or woman of God, and you're seeking to live your life as a life of integrity or celibacy or faithfulness, even as the world is parading in front of you an endless parade of sensuality and unbridled sexual expression. You and I are desiring to contend for truth, which is absolute, even as the world keeps telling us we need to be a little more winsome and a lot more tolerant of what we know is false. You and I, we want to be a light in our workplace or in our neighborhood or among our family or in the classroom, which means we have to be subjected to the crass language and the filthy jokes and the gossip and the slander and even the lure of compromising our faith just to fit in. All Christians who are truly walking with God, experience what 1 Peter 4.4 describes, which uh, speaks of the drunken, lawless lifestyle of those who worship idols rather than the living God, where Peter says, with respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. He says, they're surprised you don't join in with the flood. It's an apt word, the flood of debauchery. Some days, isn't that an apt word? It seems as though the world around us, as the people of God, we're just floating in a world that has been flooded with impurity and unrighteousness. I feel it. I know you feel it. That just feel like we're alone. We're out here marooned among a people who are godless. We're surrounded by a mindset that's contrary to God's ways. 
I know most of us experience this from the oldest of us to most probably in the strongest way, the youngest among us, the teenagers. On our best days, we're called old-fashioned or unloving. On our worst days, we're called phobic, bigoted, hateful, narrow, or oppressive. We refuse to conform to the pattern of this world. We don't blindly give in to what is fashionable or favored by the masses and just mindlessly turn our brain off and approve of whatever the world holds up and affirms. It's not that we're trying to be hated by all men, but we're also not to run around fawning after the world's approval or trying to be liked and admired by the world. Jesus' command is to love our neighbors, even our enemies, but the command is not to do everything we can do to make our enemies love us. In fact, Jesus told us in advance that the world already hates us because we're in him. So it shouldn't surprise us. And yet, as John tells us in 1 John 2, 17, he says, the world is passing away. It's it's language we use for dying. It is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. As Peter would go on to say in 1 Peter 4, 5, they, the same ones who are flooding the world with debauchery and sinfulness, he says, they will give an account of him or to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. It may feel like we're all alone, but the truth is, Jesus says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And though we're surrounded by this world that's corrupted, the reality is judgment is coming. We have the hope in Revelation chapter 19 through 22 that Babylon, the great city, the world system, will be thrown down with violence and it will be found no more. God's retribution will come swiftly and conclusively. There in Revelation, it says, in the span of 30 minutes. And what is called good by this world will one day be avenged by a holy and just judge. So today, what is paraded and celebrated and legislated and tolerated will one day be eviscerated. As much as you and I feel like we're standing alone, against this swelling global tide of wickedness in the text before us this morning is a man and his family who actually experienced that. The entire world, can you imagine it, had become corrupted. And only Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. As God communicates his means of both judgment and salvation to Noah, we're gonna see three things in our text today. So I hope you're taking note Jot these three things down. We're going to see in verses 9 through 13, mankind's corruption. We already got a glimpse of that last week, as Pastor Micah did a great job the last three weeks teaching us through Genesis 4, 5, and the beginning of 6. But we're going to see it even more today. We're going to see God's provision in verses 14 through 18 and dive a little deeper, pun intended, into the, the ark And then we're going to see Noah's obedience in verses 19 through 22. And what we'll see today is how stark Noah stands out among the masses. We're going to see God's provision of salvation, his covenant promise, at least a glimpse of it. We'll get more of it in chapter 9, in the middle of his wrath and judgment against sin. And what we're going to see also is Noah's obedience, even when it didn't make logical sense. And I think there's some apt application in the life of Noah for all of us, but especially for us as fathers on this special day. So let's begin first by contrasting mankind's corruption with Noah's character, starting in verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. You want to underline that word. That's the Hebrew word toledoth. It means essentially, it can mean generations, or it means a new time period. 
So this is the, you could say, the era of Noah. And then we learn some very important things about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And then it tells us that he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if you're taking note, first we learn that Noah is, number one, righteous. And this is man word. This is in relation to other people. He was righteous or he was just. I like what Henry Morris III says on this. He says, Noah was, quote, just. That simply means he was known for his equitable dealings with others. He charged reasonable prices for his work. He gave a good product, whatever it was, to those who employed his services. His honest dealings gave rise to his influence in the community, and he was proven to be a man of integrity. So he was righteous. He stood before other men, and he stood out among other men. But not only that, we also secondly learned that Noah was blameless. And this is God word. This is in relation to Yahweh. As God looked upon mankind, Noah was blameless, quote, in his generation. Uh, one person suggests that this phrase, in his generation, can be interpreted as alone among his contemporaries. And the word that's used here for blameless is literally the word that means free from defect. So it's a word that's often used when referring to ceremonial, sacrificial offerings, when an animal was given to God and that animal was unblemished. It was blameless. There was no blame or blemish within it. Now, blameless, we have to point out, does not mean sinless. Job was described as blameless. New Testament elders and deacons are to be marked by uh, the character of being blameless. Uh, and so that doesn't mean sinless, though. Blameless means there's not a pattern of blemish, a pattern of unrepentant, disordered rebellion in the life of someone who's blameless. And so that's Noah. Noah stood before God uh, as righteous and as blameless, but he stood alone before God in this regard. Now, thirdly, not only is he righteous and blameless, but we third learn that he walked with God. And that's the same language that's used in chapter five to describe Enoch, which we studied recently. Uh, verse 10 uh, lists the names of Noah's sons. So we get uh, a brief listing, and we're gonna learn more about them in the coming weeks, but uh, their name means, Shem, uh, Shem means renown, Ham means hot, and Japheth means beautiful. There's not a lot to uh, those names, but we'll get to those in a few weeks. Um, now, I think something poetic is happening in verses 11, 12, and 13. So let's look at those for a minute. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, what I want us to do for a minute is just contrast these three verses with the first three that we just read, or the first two, 9 and 10. So when we contrast verses 11 through 13 with those earlier descriptions of Noah, I believe there's a poetic structure here in the text. So look at it again. Look at verse 9. In other words, when he says this is the generation, or these are the generations of Noah, what he's saying is here's what Noah begat. Noah begat this. This is Noah's era or Noah's epic. 
And then we have, in verse 11, here's what the earth begat. Over here, we have Noah as a righteous, blameless man before God. And over here, we see that all flesh had corrupted their way on earth before God. Over here, Noah walked with God, and over here, the world had broken faith with God. Noah was filling the earth with his children who were blessable image bearers who would enjoy God's grace and extend his glory. And over here, what's filling the earth? Well, what is filling the earth is violence and corruption. In fact, three times in verses 11 and 12, we read the word corrupt. The world may have said, we are progressing, but God said, no, you're putrid. The world may have assessed itself as developing, but God's appraisal was that the world was defiled. God was determined to destroy the earth. And I like how Derek Kidner puts it. He says, what God intended to destroy had virtually been self-destroyed already. It was already corrupt. It was already under judgment. Now, not only was there corruption, but as we saw last week, there was also this perpetual meditation on wickedness in the thoughts of all mankind. Just consider that for a minute. Just think about this for a minute. 24-7, it says, in fact, if you look back in chapter 6 at the beginning, uh, right there in verse 7, it says in the second half, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just think about that for a minute. 24-7, mankind was thinking, in what ways can I malign my creator? Throughout the night, meditating on the thought, how can I mistreat and cheat my family, my fellow man? What can I do to take advantage of my wife, to take advantage of my neighbor? When the sun came up, what medley of sinfulness can I get myself into today? At noonday, okay, how can I get more for myself today? As the sun set every evening, what depravity can I get away with in the cover of darkness? Just think about that. Every inclination of the heart continually was evil. Just think of the magnitude of immorality that had pervaded the ends of the earth. We as image bearers were to take the glory of God and extend it out to the four corners, if you would, of the earth. And instead we spread violence and corruption. We set ourselves up as God. Whenever we have sinful intention in the mind, violence is quick to follow. Stephen Cole says this, he says, moral degradation and violence go together. When people cast off God's standards for right and wrong, self becomes the standard. Self grabs whatever it can, regardless of others. Violence is the gruesome result. So when you and I do what we believe is right in our own eyes, void of the fear of God, violence will always become acceptable and it'll always become justified. And when you add to that, a swelling population of probably a billion people at that time covering the earth with vicious, selfish brutality. Well, we have a world that's inescapable of judgment. God is absolutely just and good to wipe all mankind from the face of the earth. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? This is not some capricious, angry, you know, misinformed deity that's just exacting revenge because he's had a bad Thursday. Uh, no, this is a just judgment. And the sad part is there was supposed to be a Messiah who would crush the serpent's head, 
who would reverse the curse of Adam's race. So is this hope lost? God's gonna wipe out all mankind? No, because in God's sovereign grace, he provides a means of salvation. As heavy as this backdrop is, God's gracious provision is here in the midst of it. And so let's look at this second section, God's provision. Verse 14, God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this word ark for Noah is a brand new thing. It's a brand new concept. This has never been attempted in the world uh, up to this point. And as we talk about the ark and the flood, one of my pet peeves as a pastor, as a Christian, is when we take something from the text of Scripture and we try to express it visually. I don't think that's a problem. But the problem is when we, we completely misrepresent what is actually true. So we say, oh, that's really good, but it's better if we could put it into movie form or television form, or let's put it into picture. And, and that's not a problem. The problem is when we, uh, we do that incorrectly or we misrepresent. So there's plenty of TV shows and movies that give us a visual depiction of Jesus. I don't believe that's breaking a command of God uh, because he was, of course, uh, a Middle Eastern Jew uh, who was 30 to 33 years old when we read uh, about him in the gospel. So I don't think there's anything wrong with representing Jesus on screen. The problem is that much of the content that's put out about Jesus is creative license. It's not biblical. And so we go, oh, I didn't know Jesus did that. I don't see that in the Gospels. It's because it's creative license. It's not Scripture. And nowhere do we more misrepresent the Scripture visually, I believe, than Noah's Ark. I think that is where we literally become slightly heretical. In fact, the church nursery is often a place of optic heresy. I'm just going to say that, okay? You can at me and get mad. Here's what you find on most nursery walls. So here's a picture. This one looks like Noah's on a rowboat. And you always, by the way, you always see the elephant. You always see the giraffe with its neck sticking up super high. Um, At least this artist rendition has alpaca. They're often uh, not, uh, they're often overlooked in Noah's Ark. So thankfully that represents them well. Uh, Then we have this one. This, of course, the second one is a 1950s play set. Maybe you played with it. Does anyone see anything wrong with this picture? Does anyone see anything wrong? The question is, where are they going to fit? How are they going to fit on that thing? The kangaroo are barely going to get on board. And then here's a final one. How about this one? What's wrong with this one? All the animals are happy. Pastor, why are you such a stickler and a downer about the ark? Why? Because in each of these representations, we're reinforcing a notion that the ark is a tiny vessel. And thus, it's nothing more than a cute children's fairy tale. But is that what the Bible describes? Uh, Noah wasn't taking a safari cruise to exotic locations with his friends, the wildebeests. That's not what was happening. And by the way, this is not sunny skies and happy faces. This is the judgment of Almighty God against lawless idolatry. This is a story of darkness and depravity and death. As we'll see next week, this is not an epic battle between deities as the Gilgamesh Uh, story would suppose. Now, as we read and interpret this passage, I want us to just for a second understand a little bit of the science of the ark. Many would dismiss this as a local flood, and this is just a descriptive narrative. It's not uh, literal, and uh, I just want to dive into this for a minute. So first of all, the word ark itself, the word ark is more accurately the word chest, 
And the only other time this word is used in the Old Testament is when Exodus describes the basket that Moses was laid in as a baby. It's the same word, ark. And so the emphasis is not on the ark as a ship, but as a means, as a vessel for salvation. Both of the times the word is used in the Old Testament, it is God's means of saving someone in water. Now let's keep in mind, the ark was not designed to sail, but merely to float. There's no rudder, there's no reason to steer. This is not a ship going in and out of various ports. It's simply a chest that needed to keep from submerging. That's the first thing we need to know. But notice with me that it says that God commands Noah to use gopher wood. It's the only time this word is used in the entire Bible. And though a lot of people speculate, is that cypress wood? Is it some strong dense wood? Is it, is it the type of construction of the wood and how it fits together? Uh, we just can't be certain what it means. We just don't know. Um, but we do know that God commands Noah to build rooms in the ark. And the word for rooms here uh, is actually translated nest in every other instance in the Hebrew. So here it's translated room, but everywhere else it's translated as a nest. And so these rooms or these nests were designed to house and to protect the animals. They were not designed to display them. This is not an exhibit. Now I know that there is a, a fascinating uh, ark encounter um, and I haven't been there yet, and so I'm not sure how they display this, but I just want to point that out. It's not a zoo where you go to the various, you know, different, different rooms. Oh, there's the elephant room, and it's this huge display on exhibit. These were simply small nesting places for the animals to hole up during the deluge, and we'll talk about the animals more in just a moment. But notice with me, the ark is also supposed to be covered inside and out with pitch or resin, and this would have kept it airtight and buoyant for the many days on the water. Now let's keep reading. Let's get the dimensions of the ark so I can argue that this is not a rowboat. Verse 15, this is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. The height, 30 cubits. Uh, incidentally, for those who are into maritime uh, info, that is pretty much statistically the perfect um, uh, stats for uh, something to be seaworthy. Those stats are perfectly even. Uh, verse 16, make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So it has three decks. Now, the people of the ancient Near East had a variety of measurements. They didn't have tape measures. And the cubit was traditionally the length from your elbow to your middle finger. And I know half of you want to investigate that now. Just do it later. That's a cubit, okay? Now, this is not, of course, standardized. My cubit might be longer than your cubit. Um, and so a royal cubit was usually a little longer than that. It's about 21 inches. So this is about 18 to 21 inches or so. Now, if we translate those into feet, here's what we have on the screen. The size of the ark is around 450 feet long. It's 75 feet wide, and it's almost five stories tall. By the way, that's a footprint of just under 34,000 square feet. But as we just observed, there's three decks. So if we look at the three decks, we're looking at a floor space of 100,000 plus square feet or a storage capacity of 1.5 million cubic feet. By the way, that's the average size, ladies, of an average target. 
And so I know you love shopping at Target. Uh, the storage capacity of the Ark was around 500 railroad boxcars. Now, there was a roof that ran the length of the Ark, obviously, and ostensibly there was a, a cubic, a 21-inch or so space above the roof for air and light to circulate. We need accurate pictures to display the Ark. So here's one that's far more accurate. Uh, this is not an actual picture. It's an artist's rendition. Uh, that's much more accurate. Uh, this is not a rowboat. Look at this next one. Consider the size of the Ark compared with a 747 aircraft or with the Titanic. Okay, this is a large vessel. These three decks would have reinforced the structural integrity of this vessel, and it would also provide space for food storage and living quarters that were separate from the nesting animals. Verse 17 gives us God's purpose in commanding Noah to construct the ark. At this point, God hasn't told him. He just says, build this. And then he says in verse 17, for behold, this is such a, such a sad verse, but he says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Just grasp that for a minute, church. All flesh in which is the breath of life. We've already seen that land animals and birds were given this breath of life, and they became, in the Hebrew, a nefesh hayah, a living creature. Mankind, we were also given the breath of life. But mankind was distinct from the animal kingdom, and that we were made, we were created in the image of God. And so God says, I'm going to wipe, wipe away from the earth everything that has the breath of life. Verse 17 should remind us this is not a local Near East flood that just happened in that particular region. He says everything on the earth. This is a global, catastrophic, life-ending event that radically reshaped the geography and topography uh, of the earth. Now, this is by some people's estimation a decreation account. If you remember back in Genesis 1, the chaotic waters which God had tamed by his spirit in Genesis 1 1 through 3, these waters were now going to be unleashed as the same means of God's judgment against the corruption of mankind because of Adam's rebellion. And so we go back almost to a recreation or a decreation. The world is now going to be covered again by the face of the waters as it was at the beginning of his creation. And yet, God's covenantal promise and his gracious provision of this life-saving ark to Noah comes before the judgment. That is a picture of God's grace. God is going to promise something before judgment. So what will Noah do? What, what is his response going to be? Is he going to obey and begin constructing the ark? Or is he going to ignore God and join the rest of the world in defiant rebellion? Well, we know the answer. Look at this third section, Noah's obedience, verse 19. God says, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. I'm not going to make a cultural commentary on that, um, but enough said. 
of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Now just for a minute, I uh, have your attention on the screen, just to see this listed out so you can grasp the, the freight that is being carried onto the ark. First of all, we have eight people out of the entire world. We have Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. We have two of every kind of land creature, and kind should be notated there, male and female. We have seven of each bird kind. We'll see why that's important next week, male and female. Uh, and then we have, what we'll see next week is seven of every kind of clean animal. And we'll see why that's important next week, male and female. But then we're also told that he's to bring every sort of food that is eaten and then just general supplies to repopulate the earth with. So thinking back to how we've been programmed to see Noah's Ark, was there enough space to even fit all of this? Well, when we think about the kinds of animals, that there are to be two of every kind, if we're talking about species, there probably was not enough room. I think they estimate anywhere from eight to 130 million species. There probably wouldn't have been enough room if we're talking species. But we have to remember from science class, taxonomic rank. Aren't you so glad we're here to learn at the early service taxonomic rank? This is great. Well, let me put it on the screen. We have the different types of rank. We start at the very top with the domain and then kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. You remember that from eighth grade. And what we tend to do is we assume that kinds in the scripture, kinds of animals mean all of the lowest one there, all of the species, every kind of species. But that isn't necessarily the case. When uh, even scientists try to classify or clarify uh, taxonomic genus or species, they have a tough time even doing that. The scientists aren't always convinced of how they define a fossil. It's not like fossils when you dust them off come with a barcode and the barcode says here's the genus and species. They don't have that. And so they have to estimate it's sort of in this family. It's in this type. Uh, and so the kind that we see in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word baramen. And literally it's created kind. And baramen is actually by creation scientists believed to be at the family level of the taxonomic order. So not species, not even genus, but family. Uh, and so, and possibly even order for some plants or animals. Now there's an estimated 18 to 20,000 animals at the family level today, not counting any species that have gone extinct. So remember, zebras and horses were not both necessary to bring aboard the ark, only a horse baramen, a horse kind, from that family, or in some cases, order. So here's what Morris says. He says, authorities on taxonomy estimate there are less than 18,000 families of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians alive today. Even if that number were doubled to allow for extinct species, the ark would need to hold about 75,000 animals. Given the dimensions of the ark, which we just saw, it could easily hold as many as 125,000 animals the size of a sheep. Since the average size of land animals is less than that of a sheep, no more than 60% of the ark 
would be needed to hold the animals with the rest being used for food and water storage. There's plenty of room. And there's only a handful of larger animals and those, of, those who are larger, like the elephant, they could have been represented by younger developing animals. So remember, once aboard, it's highly probable that the animals would have been in a state of hibernation and rest rather than Noah trying to keep the cat kinds away from the rodentia kind, okay? I believe that they were uh, lured on board and in a sort of hibernated state. Uh, many people would question that and say, how could you believe, how can you believe that, uh, that God could do this? How can you believe this is a literal story? And yet, we back up and say, how can you not believe that the entire earth, with their age being prolonged, would not fall into global corruption? Of course, we would believe that. Now, even thousands and thousands of years later, when we read this, uh, we think, how can this be? What would Noah do in light of this? What would we do if God were to command us prior to rain, prior to vast oceans? There were seas, but not necessarily vast oceans. Noah's not a seafaring expert. He's not a taxonomist. We can't even assume that he's an architect. It's not like he came up with this idea on his own. I've got an idea, honey. I know this is crazy, but I've got this grand plan. I want you to go along with it. Uh, he wasn't trying to s start a new civilization with the animals as the silly movie that stars Russell Crowe tried to depict. What will Noah do? Well, look at verse 22. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I want to draw our attention to Noah's obedience in light of the state of the world. Ostensibly, prior to the flood, there's no rain. There's no reason for him to build this in the Middle East. And yet, we see that he completely obeyed. We learn later in chapter 7, uh, verse 16, that the animals, male and female, went in as God commanded him. And so Noah continued to walk not only in righteousness, but in obedience. Now, as we apply this text today on Father's Day, and we move from creation to the new creation, we studied this last week, but I want to draw our attention again to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, verse 7, again, we get this hall of faith. And what do we learn about Noah? Well, particularly, we see it was by faith that Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Remember, faith is the evidence of things not seen. He had been warned by God what was coming. This had not yet been seen, even rain. And it says, In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, by this step of obedience, he condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You know, if you compare Noah to another man in Genesis, you see some stark differences. We look at Noah and we contrast him with Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot sought to get as close to the world as possible. He, it says he pitched his tents toward the city of Sodom. He went then into Sodom. He compromised his faith. And his children found him to be a foolish laughingstock and someone who was unworthy of following. Even his wife, Lot's wife, perished under his watch as she turned back and longed to dwell 
among the wicked. But what does Noah do? We learn that Noah condemns the world. Uh, Noah doesn't compromise with the world. Noah fears God more than he loves his sin. And it says he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I think it's important to note in the earlier part of chapter 6, Noah didn't win favor with God because he was this amazing guy and thus deserved to be saved because he was righteous. No, he found favor with God. And because of God's grace in his life, Noah walked with Yahweh as an obedient, righteous, and blameless man. As we also studied last week, 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a preacher or a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a herald. He was a preacher of righteousness. And for 120 years, he preached of looming judgment and God's only means of salvation. And just imagine what that would have sounded like. Hey, I know you've never heard of rain, but rain's coming. Uh, I know you've never seen a flood, but a flood is coming. I know that this seems silly, what I'm building, but this is the means of salvation. You, you need this to be saved. And he spoke and he preached to deaf and obstinate ears. If you think about it for a minute, not a single person outside of his family was saved. Noah's preaching, you could say, was ineffectual. But not really, because it was his wife, his sons, and his son's wives, his family, who heeded his preaching, who heeded his message. His preaching wasn't just out there to the ungodly while he lived a contrary life of disobedience or hypocrisy behind closed doors. No, he had integrity on the job site. He had integrity and character in his household. His wife and his children didn't reject him and think, Dad's really lost it now. <laughs> He's so extreme in his beliefs. Literally, everyone else in the world disagrees with Dad. Literally. Tone it down, pops. No, his family, as we'll see next week in chapter 7, they enter the ark together with Noah, his wife, and Shem, and Shem's wife, and Ham, and Ham's wife, and Japheth, and Japheth's wife. Noah was a man of integrity that his family would willingly follow to their own salvation. Men, fathers, our children will listen to our lives louder than our lectures. We can preach to our kids all day long. We can have family worship and say, sit down, I have some things to tell you, kiddos. But then we contradict the very instruction we've given them because we react in our anger and our pride and our lust and our envy and our selfishness. Men, fathers, you're shaping the lives that God has entrusted to your care. But let me remind you, like Noah, we're not sinless. As we'll see in this narrative in, a, in just a few weeks, Noah was not sinless, but he was blameless. So may we point in the same way, may our lives point our children closer to our gracious God and never away from him. As we close, I want to connect this story to the gospel. You see, there were those who stood outside the ark as the rain began to fall. And even today, mankind stands before a judgment of God against sin, which is inescapable. All of creation, we learn, is subjected to futility, and all who are in Adam will die, will face the fearsome indignation of an infinitely holy, of a set-apart, of a magnificently majestic and perfectly powerful creator. And God, the creator, reveals to us that the wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God provides a means of salvation for Noah, the righteous man, and God's salvation was sufficient, it was predetermined, and it was exclusive. There were not many arcs. There are not many ways or many paths to God. There's only one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We learn that there's a door on the side of the ark, and this door was large enough to fit all who God had drawn into it. And Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. We enter salvation through Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But one of my favorite things is overlooked in this text, and that is that he was to cover the ark inside and out with pitch. That word for pitch there, the, not only the verb and the noun, they're closely related to the Hebrew word for atonement. The word means to cover. Isn't it wonderful, beloved, to know that Christ's death on the cross is the atoning sacrifice that provides us with the mercies of God, that our sins have been cleansed, that we have been covered by the righteousness of Christ? The psalmist said it this way. David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no Deceit. You see, the Bible affirms that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been atoned for. They've been covered by the saving work of Christ on the cross. It's something for us to glory in. And yet, as Jesus said in Luke 17, he said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And we are in that day. He says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I want to beseech you this morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. By no means whatsoever does that translate to you approaching God on your own terms. By no means whatsoever is God offering you a free pass or a blind eye because of your sin. Far from it. Your sin has condemned you. It's your very sin that condemned our precious Lord, God's dear Son, and the unblemished Lamb. It was your sin, it was my sin that crucified Christ. And if you should not repent, it is your sin that will one day close your eyes in death and separation. And yet, we know this, don't we? We celebrate this on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead triumphantly. He forever conquered sin and the curse of sin. And those of us who are in Christ will now rise with him and suffer not the second death or the torment of eternal judgment. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never trusted Christ, like Noah, I invite you to heed God's truth and to turn and be saved today. We'll close with a Spurgeon quote. He says, it is a solemn thought that one lone man condemned a world. It was one against millions, yet the one condemned the millions. If God is with a man, though that man be only one, he is in the majority. Men of the world will soon become a weeping, wailing, and despairing company, but he that stands alone for God shall be had in honor and shall both judge and condemn the guilty world. Amen? 
May the same be true of us as men, as as fathers, and as followers of Jesus Christ. May we stand as righteous, blameless, and those who walk with God. Let's stand together. Bow your heads with me. God of mercy, we thank you that like Noah, we are justified by faith alone, apart from merit. And in your justice, you are upright and true to pour out your wrath against transgression. You're perfectly just in all of your ways. And this flood that we've looked at and we will study in the next few weeks, it's a sobering reminder that judgment delayed is not judgment denied. And yet even in your wrath, Father, you remember mercy. You showed your kindness and your favor to Noah and his family. You provided the means of salvation through the ark and the door that Noah and his family entered in became the entry to their salvation. And you've done the same with your son, Jesus Christ. He is the door and through him we enter in and are saved. Through Jesus, we continually offer a sacrifice of praise, and we bear the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so, precious Father, we pray for our fathers. We pray for our fathers today for a mingling of mercy and strength. Mercy in their weakness, in their failures, in their mistakes, and in their sin, and strength in their love for you. Strength in their resolve when the world is encompassed around them. Strengthen the inner man when their bodies are growing frail. Strengthen their faith as they're kept in your love to the very end. Lord, as your people, the church, we recognize we often stand alone in a world that has waged war against you and your law. And though we feel opposed in this world, the truth is that we are never alone. You promise to never leave us nor forsake us. So Lord, we pray that with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we'll fight with faith and valor. When we're faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and we know that Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. And so to that end, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Spirit, come, put strength in every stride and give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. It's in your matchless name that we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.